Good morning to you all and grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to begin a new sermon series that will take us through most of the summer, if not into the fall. We're going to be looking at the man named Moses in the Bible and see how the Lord took a man who saw himself as a nobody and made him the leader of his people, the one who would deliver them from Egypt. I think there are many lessons that we can learn from the life of Moses, so we're going to look at a portion of his life each week and see how the Lord moved to prepare Moses for leadership and then how the Lord provided for and guided his servant to prepare Moses to lead his people out of bondage. One theologian has said that apart from Jesus, no one person in history has made so deep or lasting an impression on the world as Moses. And that's quite a statement. When you consider people like Napoleon and Muhammad and Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther, Isaac Newton, William Shakespeare, Alexander the Great, I could go on and on. Yet here stands Moses, all alone, the one they call the the great lawgiver, the one who was the emancipator of Israel. Another theologian said, apart from Jesus himself, he is the greatest man in the Bible. When the Apostle John wrote his gospel near the end of of the first century, John made a comparison between the two, and he said the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In that one statement, we have the law and the gospel put together for us. The Bible mentions Moses almost 700 times. God wrote Moses' epitaph. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, when he said this, No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And Exodus 33.11 tells us that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And that statement is not made about anyone else in the Bible, not even men like Abraham or David. And I think that the mental image we have for Moses It depends a little bit on Hollywood, doesn't it? Most of us have probably seen the movie The Ten Commandments starring Charlton Heston. When you think of Moses, is that the picture that comes into your head for some of you? It is for me. Heston's Moses was strong, handsome, right? Very brave. Now, for those who are a little bit younger, maybe you've seen the animated feature The Prince of Egypt. That movie portrayed Moses as witty and and fun-loving and very athletic. In fact, In that movie, he never seemed to age. He looked the same at age 80 as he did at 15. But the Bible paints for us an entirely different picture of Moses. While showing us that he was a real man who had some undeniable gifts from God, it doesn't cover up his weaknesses, especially his very painful self-doubt. We're going to see Moses face all kinds of troubles, And he doesn't always handle them very well. In this new series, we're going to focus more on the beginning of the story of Moses and see how God prepared him to be the leader for his people. There was no human reason why he should be the one to deliver God's people out of bondage. In fact, really looking at him, everything argued against it. Yet there, we're going to find him standing on the banks of the Red Sea with his arms raised, his staff in his hand, as the Lord parts the waters of the Red Sea so his people can cross over on dry ground. 
Moses lived for 120 years, and his life can be divided up roughly into four, three, I'm sorry, three equal parts of 40 years each. He spent the first 40 years basically growing up. Then he spent 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness, and he spent the last 40 years as the leader of the Israelites. D.L. Moody said this about Moses. He said he spent 40 years thinking he was a nobody, then 40 years discovered, I'm sorry, let me change that. He spent 40 years thinking he was a somebody, then 40 years in the wilderness discovering he was a nobody, and the last 40 years learning how God could train a nobody to be somebody in God's sight that he could use. And Exodus 1 tells us how the story of Moses begins. This morning we'll be in Exodus chapter 1 where we will see the stage set for Moses to be born. Now Moses himself is not mentioned in this chapter, but this chapter is going to show us what kind of world Moses was born into and what kind of faith a few Jewish midwives had as they chose to obey God rather than the edict of the Pharaoh. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 1, and please stand with me as you're able for the reading from God's Word this morning. I'll be reading all of Exodus chapter 1. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it begins on page 40. Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, the descendants of Jacob, numbered 70 in all, Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their labor, hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Lord, as we look at this passage, there are things 
that, that are reminiscent of even our world today. So I pray, Lord, that you would open up your word to us, that your Holy Spirit would guide our, our hearts and our thoughts today and my words as well. That as I always pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be pleasing to you as we look into your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So our passage begins here with listing the names of the 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob, whose name had been changed to Israel back in Genesis chapter 35. These 12 families would grow into the 12 tribes of Israel that are mentioned throughout the Old Testament. And the family of Jacob of Israel that had relocated to the land of Egypt only numbered 70 people in verse 5. But we're told in verses 6 and 7 that Joseph and all of his brothers and everyone in that generation died, but the Israelites had been fruitful and had multiplied in numbers so that the land was now filled with them. In fact, if we look at Exodus 12, verses 40 and 41, we'll see that from the time that Jacob and his sons and their families first went down to Egypt to the time of the Exodus... 430 years have passed. That's a long period of time. Long enough for these Israelites to have been able to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. So from verse 1 to verse 6, a long period of time has passed. And what started as a, a group of 70 people migrating from Canaan to Egypt became this vast nation. Some scholars say anywhere between one and two million people. This tiny group of shepherds finding refuge in Goshen grew into this mighty nation that now became a threat to Egypt. And this 430-year time period helps explain how a new king could come to the throne who didn't know anything about Joseph. Now we might think to ourselves, how could a king become pharaoh in Egypt and not know about Joseph, right? Because Joseph had been the one who had literally saved the nation of Egypt by wisely piling up excess grain during those, those good years so that during those seven years of famine, the people had enough to eat. Joseph should have been taught about to their children down through the ages. But apparently, apparently they'd stopped teaching about that part of their past. Now, we would never let something like that happen in the good old USA, would we? Well, we'd like to think not, but I think we see it happening all the time now in our schools where history is being rewritten and children are being taught different things about our nation's past. And friends, it's a very dangerous thing to forget where you have come from. So this new king knew nothing about Joseph and what he had done to save the Egyptian people and he and the Egyptians now saw the Israelites as a threat to them and a threat to their prosperity. So the king told the people, we must deal shrewdly with these Israelites. He was afraid that the Israelites would continue to grow more and more numerous, and if they joined with Egypt's enemies, they would fight against them, and then the Egyptians would be defeated. So the Egyptians put slave masters over the Israelites. They oppressed them so that the Israelites became little more than forced labor for Egypt. 
And we're told that the Israelites helped them build the store cities of Pithom and Ramses for this new pharaoh. But that even under the strong arm of the new pharaoh's oppression, the Israelites continued to multiply and grow. Now this new pharaoh, we're we're never even told his name, but this new pharaoh came up with a a three-part plan to try and keep the Israelites in their place. The first part we just talked about. He made them his slaves, his labor force, by putting slave masters over them and making them do hard labor. But parts two and three of his plan were more diabolical, more evil, as he tries to keep Hebrew baby boys from being born so that they can't grow up and become an army that could fight against him. But think about this. What he didn't realize was that by... um, planning to keep them from being born, he was actually depleting himself of his strong labor force down the road as well. If no more Israelite males were born, who was going to do that hard, back-breaking labor 20 to 30 years down the road? But he didn't think about that. Sometimes we can get so fixated on one thing that we can't see clearly what the ramifications of our actions are until it's too late. So this new king called in two of the Hebrew midwives, to talk to them. Now, in my mind, I have to believe that for a nation of anywhere from one to two million people, there were probably more than two midwives. I don't know. Only two of them are mentioned here, Shifra and Pua. And maybe they were to relay this message to all the other Hebrew midwives, or maybe there were just two of them. That's a lot of work for just two women. But the Pharaoh called them in, And he told them that as they're assisting the Hebrew women with their births, if the baby is a girl, fine, let that baby live. But if he is a boy, they are to somehow kill him. Let's not mince words here. This is genocide. This is baby killing. This is murder. His plan was to get rid of the Hebrew people by not allowing any of the Hebrew males to be born. This reminds me of the evil of Hitler in Germany as they tried to eradicate the Jews in World War II. It was evil back then in the days of Pharaoh. It was evil in the days of Hitler. And killing innocent babies is still evil today. We'd like to think that we've somehow advanced. Some would say that we have evolved, right, past things like this. But sadly, we haven't. Under the guise of health care, we abort unborn babies. There have been many Uh, who have proposed new laws in certain states that would allow doctors to legally neglect newborns who somehow survived an abortion attempt. There are many pro-abortion people today who are also wanting to move toward not only authorizing late-term abortions for any reason, but also approving the taking of the lives of babies after they've been born if they're not wanted for whatever reason they can come up with. The heart of man has not changed. The sin that darkened Pharaoh's heart still darkens the heart of mankind today as well. But thank God for women like Shifra and Pua. We're told that these two women feared God and didn't do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the baby boys live. This is a very important verse. We can't shy away from it. We can't back away from it in any way. This is nothing less than deliberate disobedience to the king. It is intentional rebellion, but it is rebellion 
against a very unjust decree. Pay careful attention to what the text says. Because they feared God, they disobeyed the king. We learned last week from Solomon that the conclusion of the matter is to fear God and keep his commands. These Hebrew midwives understood this concept and they lived it out with their actions. They understood that each little life is a gift from God. So little boys lived because these women refused to obey an evil command. It was a silent protest against injustice. And notice that they didn't make a big public ordeal out of it, right? We have no record that they spoke out against Pharaoh's decree. They don't seem to have spoken out publicly at all. In modern terms, they didn't post their rebellion on social media, write letters to the local editor, or form picket lines and come up with some kind of chant to support their position. They simply, very quietly, disobeyed the command of the king because it went against the teaching from God that all life is sacred. They understood a very simple, basic fact. And that fact is, you don't kill babies. It doesn't matter what the king says. You don't kill babies, period. And if more people today had the courage to stand up and support that simple statement, maybe our nation wouldn't be where we are today morally and sadly legally. These midwives took this stand without regard to the consequences. If Pharaoh found out about their rebellion, there would be consequences, because you don't go against the Pharaoh. If they found out what they, if he had found out what they had done, they weren't going to live to see another day. And yet they weren't trying to anger the king. They weren't trying to make the king look bad in any way. They weren't trying to overthrow him, but they decided they couldn't obey an unjust law. They decided they would rather obey God than obey man. Reminds me of what Peter said in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when he said, we must obey God rather than man. Peter and the other apostles had been brought before the Sanhedrin because they had been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, they had been arrested the day before and put in the local jail uh, because of their preaching, but an angel of the Lord had come in that night opened the doors of the jail for them, let them out, and told them, I want you to go in the temple courts and tell the people the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. So they did. And when the religious leaders found them in the temple courts teaching and preaching about Jesus, they brought them before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin told them, hey, we gave you strict orders. You're not to teach and preach in this name anymore. That's when Peter replied to them, we must obey God rather than men. And it's the same attitude that these Hebrew midwives had. They knew that life was precious to God, that it came from God, that it was a gift from God, and they would not be part of taking that life away. So they chose to obey God rather than the Pharaoh. And there may come a day when we have to take that kind of a stand as well. There may come a day when the church of Jesus Christ comes under persecution here in our nation. Now, according to our Constitution, that should never happen. But many of our leaders are straying further and further from our Constitution with each speech they made and each proposal that they make. 
We live in strange times where obedience to God may begin to look like rebellion against the state. And each one of us has to decide in his or her own heart where we're going to stand. Solomon told us to fear God and obey his commands. May we all have the courage and the faith to do that just as these Hebrew midwives did. Now eventually, word got back to the king that these Hebrew baby boys were not being killed when they were born. And he's furious, right? Nobody disobeys the king. Heads are going to roll. He brought these two women before him and he asked them why they had done this. Why have you disobeyed my direct orders? And the midwives answered him, and I love this answer. Well, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're more vigorous, and they give birth before the midwives arrive. And that's all we're told, right? The writer of Exodus states their reply, but doesn't give us any other explanation. Now, I read a number of of commentaries uh, on this passage in preparation for this message, and I want to share with you a couple. Uh, John MacArthur says this is a literally true statement because God somehow intervened to cause the Hebrew mothers to deliver more quickly. Could be. Warren Wearsby suggests it's true because the midwives possibly told the pregnant mothers to not call them until after the baby boys had already been born. There are many different thoughts concerning this statement uh, made by the midwives. But you know what? It doesn't really matter how it came about. What's important is the baby boys were allowed to live after they'd been born. And we're told that the Lord blessed these Hebrew midwives for their obedience to him and even allowed them to have families of their own. I find it really interesting that in this passage, we're never told the name of this new Pharaoh, but these two Hebrew midwives are named, aren't they? I believe this is God's way of telling us who matters the most in this passage. Those two names, Shifra means beautiful, and Pua means splendid. And they did some beautiful and splendid things because of their faith, didn't they? These two women were honored by God by having their names mentioned in God's word, while this new Pharaoh and all of the glory and splendor of the throne of Egypt is never even mentioned by name here. And God honored these two women for their obedience to him and their disobedience to the king, just as he would later honor men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3, and Daniel himself in Daniel 6, when they chose to honor God over and above the king. And the king apparently let these women live. But then he hatched the third part of his plan, to try and keep the Jewish people under his control. Pharaoh has now gone from slavery to genocide to now state-sponsored murder. He no longer relied on the Hebrew midwives to do his dirty work for him, He now declared open season on every Hebrew baby boy. And he sparked a reign of terror that I think went throughout the land. He made the edict, every baby boy that's born to the Hebrews must be thrown into the Nile River, but they were let to let the baby girls live. Friends, this is evil incarnate. This is the taking of innocent life for selfish reasons that have nothing to do with God and his created order. And this is the world that Moses will be born into. And we're going to look at what happens with that next week in Exodus chapter 2. 
But to close out for this morning, I want to ask what lessons can we learn from this passage of God's Word for today? First of all, when God intends to bless His people, no wicked or evil man can foil God's plans. Pharaoh was like the the Hitler of the Old Testament. He thought he could give the word and all the Jewish baby boys would be killed. But God had other plans, plans that we will see unfold next week. Secondly, we can learn that salvation is from the Lord, not from men. The Jewish people had to learn that that Pharaoh was not going to save them and that they couldn't save themselves. That was true back then, and it's true for us today. If we are somehow looking for the government to save us, then friends, we're looking in the wrong place. Salvation only comes from the Lord. The early church reformers often spoke of what they called an alien righteousness, meaning that righteousness comes from another place. And if all of my righteous deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight, as Isaiah teaches us, then the righteousness that I need must come from somewhere outside of me. I can't save myself. Someone else must save me. And that someone is Jesus. His righteousness must be imputed to me because I can do nothing to earn it, and I certainly don't deserve it. Third, it's still true today that we must obey God rather than men. When the Hebrew midwives disobeyed Pharaoh, they were actually obeying God. They feared God so much that they didn't even seem to fear the Pharaoh at all. And lives were saved as a result. And God honored their faithfulness by giving them families. So we might be able to conclude from this story that it's better to be a Hebrew midwife than to be the Pharaoh of Egypt. And we may find ourselves in their position before too long. Given the moral trajectory of our world, we will soon need Christians who are willing to risk everything to obey God in a very godless world. And we can only pray for the same faith and the same courage that these two women had. Fourth, every child born to a Christian family is a statement of faith. It is a statement that we are trusting God that he will watch over our young ones, even as they're raised in a world that is increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. And you know what? We can look back at the past, but I'm going to tell you it doesn't do any good to talk about how it was 50 years ago. That doesn't matter because these are our times. This is our day to serve the Lord. Whether good or bad, these are the only times we've been given. And it is our privilege to serve the Lord today, right where we are. We have no time or need to despair. We have no reason to despair. You know why? Because Christ has risen from the dead. He has already conquered sin and death for us. We are just called to live in that victory and in that promise. Sometimes I hear very well-meaning Christians say that we shouldn't bring children into a world like this. But let me ask you, when has it ever been a good world to bring children into? Yes, these are hard times, but look at what was happening back in the days when Moses was going to be born. But what do we read? The Jews kept making babies, didn't they? 
They kept having children. They grew. They multiplied. Remember what the text says about the midwives. Because of their faithfulness, God gave them families of their own. In that awful hour under that murderous king in desperate circumstances, when hope seemed lost, God gave them families. So I think we need to say to our young people today, fear God, find a godly mate and get married and make some babies. I have no problem saying that. Because every child born to a Christian family is a statement of faith. It is a vote for God in a world that has totally gone mad against God. The faith of these midwives paved the way for Moses to be born. They didn't know that at the time. They were just being faithful to God in the midst of very trying circumstances. Sooner or later, we're all going to have to choose sides. Will we stand with the midwives or will we stand with Pharaoh? Will we stand for God while others around us bow down to Satan? At that final hour that we talked about last week, it will be way more dangerous to bow to the world than to stand for God. So may we be people who will stand for life in a culture of death, who will stand for truth in a time of lies, and who will stand for hope in a world full of despair. Our marching orders have been given to us. And we are to stand strong in the fear of the Lord. We are to speak the truth of God and let the Lord take care of the results. Can we do that in the grace and power that Christ gives us? I hope and pray that we all can. Please pray with me. Lord, I thank you that you are God. I thank you for for these lessons we can learn from from your people from, from way back, Lord these stories that should never, ever be stopped. They should always be told and and retold to generations down the road, Lord. As this Pharaoh had never heard about Joseph, Lord, help us to always remember our past and, and, and everything that happened in the Old Testament because it leads up, Lord, to our day today. And it all points toward your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to be our Savior, to save us from our sins. Thank you for the courage And the faith you gave to these midwives, Lord, help us to have that same courage and faith today. Help us, Lord, to fear you as they did. To stand for you in a world that is so against you, Lord. Give us faith and courage each day to live for you. And as we sing this closing hymn, Lord, help us to stand up, stand up for Jesus each and every day of our lives. I pray in your precious and powerful name, Jesus. Amen.